Hey there, I'm Eric J. Olson. And I'm Kevin Daisy. You're listening to the Managing Partners Podcast, where we interview top lawyers about how they're growing their firms. Good afternoon. This is Eric J. Olson with another live episode of the Managing Partners Podcast. And today I'm really excited because we have Anissa. Am I saying it correctly? Anessa. Anessa. God, I totally screwed that up right off the bat. Everybody does. So Anessa. All right. Good thing I asked. Otherwise, you know, I doesn't know how to read and, and talk. So Anessa. Uh, so I'm excited about this because you have deep experience in fintech and things like blockchain. And I'm all of a sudden interested in this technology, even though I've known about it for years. So I, I just recently got into investing in cryptocurrency. And so I started to dig a little bit deeper than the last, you know, five or so years where I've known about it, but I haven't really looked into it. And, you know, one of the questions that I had personally, and you don't need to answer this right now, but the blockchain, and I'm like, I think there's a lot of different blockchains, like which one is the blockchain? So uh, there's a lot to unpack here, I think. Uh, so anyways, I'm very excited to have you on and I'm really excited to learn about all of this FinTech. Well, thanks for having me. You know, it's one of my passion subjects. So I'm always glad to hop into a blockchain and FinTech conversation. Oh, very cool. Wait, why don't you, um, let's start off by just giving us a little bit of an overview about uh, who you are and what you do. Sure. So I'm a really boring corporate securities attorney living here in Orlando. And <laughs> this little space that I'm in, this is my home office, right? That when all of us went remote during the pandemic, uh, this is where I came. And so I spend about 15 hours a day here. Uh, close oh, yeah. to 70 hours a week in my little room. And, and basically, I focus on helping deep and emerging technology companies worldwide. So I've got clients all over the world, right? And I'm helping them sort of figure out what are some of these new technology tools and how can they integrate them into existing and or prospective business processes? Very, very interesting. So worldwide client base. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm guessing that that took a little bit of time to cultivate and to kind of get your name out there. What, what were some of the things that uh, kind of got you onto that worldwide stage? So I think, well, here's what they tell me. <laughs> so I'm an educator by nature, right? So I'm a real geek. I'm a total geek and very much an academic. And one of the things that I really love doing is teaching. And so any opportunities that I would have to sort of, you know, get out there pre-pandemic and, you know, really be on stage and get with people in a room talking to them about what is happening with blockchain and financial technology and related data analytics tools, how this is going to completely change our lives as dramatically as our lives were changed with the internet and, and trying to help them prepare, right? And so per those conversations, it's just kind of like word of mouth got out because I wasn't actively advertising or marketing. And then, uh, you know, folks would call me up and they'd say, well, you know, I heard your lecture or I saw your presentation or whatever, and I wanted to talk to you about X, Y, Z. And then just pursuant to just being available and having those conversations with folks, uh, they would just end up uh, hiring me as their counsel. Fantastic. That's great. That kind of like, uh, you, so you, you create the validate or the validation scenario just by talking about the subject that 
you're passionate about and then people hear you talk about it and you're immediately validated. You don't need to prove yourself really to, to the people that are coming to you. And now you get inbound leads from that. that that's fantastic marketing right there. Well, you know, it sort of leaves out the first and most important step, and that is becoming competent. Yeah. <laughs> and that is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of glossed over that. Right? Yeah, we just got, <laughs> forget all those hundreds of hours of study yeah. on blockchain minutia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and once you kind of understand it, I guess, yeah, it, it becomes a little easier to talk about it. Let's talk about, I guess maybe like generally, let's assume the people that are watching this either now or later, they don't know anything about blockchain, right? They don't understand like how it could be used. Can you maybe just give like a, a one-on-one overview of things like blockchain and, and maybe even um, uh, decentralized finance, things like that? Well, blockchain at its heart is really just a new kind of data management system. And so when we think about all of the kinds of information that we are trading in on a daily basis, right? Every time I make a LinkedIn post or a Facebook post or an Instagram post or, you know, that would be data. And that's information that's tied to me and my identity. Anytime that I actually engage in a financial transaction at the grocery store or on Amazon or anywhere else for that matter. So I am leaving sort of my fingerprints of data around on these very various networks and that information is in stored in these you know sort of server warehouses that are managed and maintained either directly by the company with whom I'm transacting or maybe that that service is being farmed out to a third-party service provider so blockchain is just another way to track and store data but what makes it so very interesting is how it does that. How the blockchain tracks and records and recalls data is what has got everybody so incredibly excited because it solves a lot of problems with data privacy and data security that we've really been encountering here in the past 10 years. So if you are watching this video today, then you have likely been a victim of digital identity theft your personal information has more than likely been hacked and sold somewhere on the dark web. And the way that blockchain stores information about, you know, all of the little things that you do on the internet every day is highly secure in comparison to existing data management systems. And the reason for this is because it employs something called cryptography. And that is, it takes the information that you would normally see on your bank statement or maybe on your Instagram post, and it applies on top of it an algorithm that translates that. Just like I'm fluent in Spanish and I can translate anything from English into Spanish and then back again, blockchain takes this algorithm and it translates the information that you're storing inside a data management system and it translates it into an alphanumeric a string of characters that uh, is nearly impossible, well, at least until now, it's still impossible to be undone, to be hacked. And so it provides a kind of privacy and data security that we've never had yet. The second thing about blockchain that makes it really exciting 
is that it removes intermediaries in a lot of the transactions that we engage in on a regular basis so that we can conduct transactions directly with one another. So Eric, if I wanted to send you, like let's say that you were on a vacation and you were over in, I don't know, India, because like I'm really into some reality shows that are in India, like about marriage. And I'm like, oh, this is so beautiful. So you're over in India and you're like, oh, you know, I need some extra cash. You know, I want to get this really, really gorgeous sari or whatever. And so I want to send you some money. Historically, we would have to use a third party service provider like Western Union, or we would have to like figure out how to do this transfer with with our banks and maybe we don't have the same bank. And so the issue with this is that anytime that we were transferring funds, that the cost of the transaction, the fee that the service provider was was charging, whether it be a bank or a Western Union or some other. Uh, company, this intermediary, the fee would oftentimes be more than the amount that the parties actually wanted to change back and forth. And the time of transaction reconciliation could be several days, several business days. So the lag made it seriously problematic. And so what blockchain does is that it allows me to sort of take you know, my money in my bank account, transfer it to my digital wallet, right? And so then in my digital wallet, I send it to Eric's digital wallet, right? In this example, he's like hanging out, traipsing around India and I'm all kinds of jelly. And so then he just then takes his phone and he makes the move from his digital wallet back into his bank account and voila, Eric's got the money in less than 20 minutes and for a fraction yeah. of what banks normally charge. This is why everyone is so flipping excited about blockchain. It's it's pretty incredible. And I, I hear people, startups, pitching all sorts of ideas on how to use blockchain for basically like every transaction that you could think of in a life. <laughs> or, or even like, uh, actually, I think it was even this morning I was listening to podcast and the, the person was talking about transferring your social influence from one synonym in a social media platform to another using blockchain and technology yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah and so that really gets into the blockchain stack right uh, the software stack and the layering of the applications and what you could do with it so you know earlier you sort of tossed out this you know this thought to me when you and i were chatting about like you've heard about like the blockchain like what would be the blockchain right and and i assume right that it's one of two options right it's it's either the bitcoin blockchain which is our original blockchain and it is the blockchain that is so fantastically decentralized that it there's nobody in charge for any of the regulatory authorities to sue and there's nowhere to send a mandamus for somebody to be required to show up in a court of law and account for the Bitcoin blockchain activity that's happening. So it just it just kind of happens all on its own. It's it's it kind of has its its own momentum. Um, but but currently the Bitcoin blockchain, and you'll appreciate this, Eric, is is only 
a very sort of primitive programming script that doesn't do a whole lot beyond transfer, you know, X amount of coins from account A to account B, right? Or subtract coins from account A and add coins to account B, actually, I think is the way that the, the programming script is written. But then a few years later came along Ethereum. Ethereum could also arguably be considered the blockchain. It's essentially blockchain 2.0, because what happened was the authors came up with a programming script that is Turing complete, which essentially means for our viewers that the universe of contracting capabilities can more or less be translated into programming code. Uh, the Ethereum uh, programming code is called Solidity. And so anything that you agree to in, in simple, simple contracts that I would write as an attorney, we can also translate this into the Solidity Programming Code, and we can set it out there on the Ethereum blockchain. And what's amazing is it just automatically executes itself. And I don't know, I'm going to date myself here. I know I might regret this, but there was a time, right, back in college when you know, you would have to install a program, a software program onto you your from a store, right? Yeah. I remember. Me. And it was like, it was a thing. And it would come with like all these written instructions and like the code that you had to write. And, you know, like I actually was taught how to write in DOS. And I know like a lot of people on here would be like, I don't even know what that is. Like, you don't need to know, right? I'm, I'm old. Um, but what's amazing now is that you can just go out and you can just grab any program and it downloads itself and then it just unpacks itself. And then you click a few next buttons and it automatically loads itself and then it launches itself okay people this was not a thing this was not a thing so when we talk about smart contracts automatically executing themselves on a blockchain this is a really good uh, analogy as to how this works and so you can just kind of like set it and forget it just like you can you know go out and uh, get these third-party service providers and you can sort of like load up and you're like okay i'm going to make this many social media posts over the course of the next three months and i want these posts to go live on this date at this time and yada 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 and then you just like go away and it happens this is what we're talking about smart contracts loaded onto a blockchain and, but the problem is, is that if there's a if there's an error in the smart contract code, there's no undo. Right. And that is one of the solute. That's one of the problems that people are kind of working on solving these days. Cool. So if, if I could kind of like uh, oversimplify and uh, summarize, it sounds like when we say the blockchain, there's probably two contenders. So first of all, there's sounds like there could be lots of blockchains. The original was Bitcoin's blockchain, but that's very specific for transferring money from one person to another. And then Ethereum came along and said, well, that, that's cool, but we want this to have multiple different reasons for using it that we don't even understand, like how people would use this. And so they created this kind of like framework to create smart contracts on the blockchain. And then those can be used for all sorts of different purposes. Yes. Got it. Cool. So Ethereum is Ethereum kind of like the forerunner, I guess, of, of blockchains when it comes to doing these other kinds of transactions besides Bitcoin back and forth. And I guess it could even do Bitcoin, right? But well, it can do Bitcoin because blockchains are siloed currently. Although okay, there's, so yeah, there's, there's, you want to play 
in Bitcoin land, you're you're doing on the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah, blockchain. well, yeah, because they don't really talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> Our blockchains don't really—they don't communicate uh, yeah. very well. But there are a lot of really uh, promising sort of um, ex- uh, blockchain communication exchanges that are under development. And there is so much blockchain news, development news on a daily basis. I can't keep up. Nobody can keep up with it. Even if you dedicate yourself full time, it's just impossible. So much is happening around the world with this technology. Uh, I'll agree with you on that because I, I I do follow it now and uh, and I can't keep up. And I, I've always said like with digital marketing, every single day, there's some big breaking change in digital marketing. Google's doing this. Facebook's doing that. And so like it's a full-time job. And so keeping up with digital marketing is tough. And now I'm trying to also just understand uh, things like blockchain and DeFi. And it's it seems to be moving much, much faster. It is moving much faster, you know, and I've, I've heard you bring up this word DeFi for a little bit. So DeFi stands for decentralized finance, right? For folks that might not know what that means. And it's it's basically from my from my understanding, uh <laughs> DeFi is uh, generally about how it is that you can, you know, take your decentralized crypto assets, whether they be commodities or whether they be NFTs or whether they be, you know, cryptocurrencies and how can you stake them or how can you otherwise sort of invest them maybe pursuant to a decentralized exchange and then actually be able to generate income from your digital asset. And so this is very, very tricky because it's new, it's under development, it's highly regulated, and the regulatory authorities, at least here in the United States, are wholly uncertain as to what this is, how it works, because it is so quickly changing, and just how it is that they think that they want to regulate this. Got it. Wow. I mean, we spent 18 minutes really just talking about blockchain and we barely scratched the surface. I, I definitely want to bring this back around to uh, the law industry, but a cu- couple of other things that I wanted to talk about first. So actually we have a comment here from Sean Ragsdale, devaluing the United States dollar faster than Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's pretty funny, Sean. Um, <laughs> and totally not funny at the same yeah, time totally not funny at the same because time he's really right i know exactly what he's talking about and this could really get me going on central bank digital currencies and what's going to happen with that yeah and you know i i, I started to kind of get into this whole blockchain and uh, cryptocurrency world when i uh, i read a, a book by robert kiyosaki named fake and it's about fake currency and other other kinds of fake things that are out there, fake assets, et cetera. But um, the fake currency was the fiat currency. And he doesn't believe in it because the government just prints, 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 and it gets devalued. But things like blockchain, or not blockchain, uh, Bitcoin, have a limited supply, right? And so, um, you know, supply and demand, if there's limited limited supply and there, the demand increases, the value goes up. And we've seen that over time. It's almost like digital gold, which I think is what people call Bitcoin, right? Yes. Yes. So if you've ever read The Creature from Jekyll Island, it 
reads like a highly entertaining horror story about the U.S. Federal Reserve and a 30,000 foot view of exactly, you know, how we've gotten ourselves into our current financial quandary. And it's, you know, I highly recommend it for anyone who is interested in finance and economics generally, or, you know, you don't think you are, but you sort of get the feeling that something dreadful is about to befall us here in the United States, or maybe some of our other countries, and, you know, that viewers might be watching from. And, you know, even though The Creature from Jekyll Island is, is written from the perspective of what happened here with the U.S., there's so much discussion historically about the uh, integration and relationship of the U.S. financial system with that of many nations in Europe, and then generally how that evolved into the International Monetary Fund and the World Economic Forum and the World Bank and, you know, our global financial system and how it operates generally, I, I really, really recommend it. It blew my mind. It took me over a year to read because it made me really, really mad each time I would read the chapter. So I learned I couldn't read it before I went to bed. And so I'm really, really busy from the time I wake up. Yeah. And so I would just have to wait until I had time to read it and, and that it would be okay if I was angry thereafter for a while. Wow. I'm, I'm going to have to <laughs> definitely buy that one. Yeah, I, I, I have, there's a lot of unknowns for me about like how all this came to be. Well, that's, it's, it's an incredible area that you're involved in. And it definitely, you know, like you look at Bitcoin's price and certainly there was a spike, I don't know, maybe like two, three years ago, and then it kind of dropped again. And now there's another spike. And it's either at or near uh, record highs. I, I haven't checked in the last couple of days, but I know it's super, super high compared to where it's been. But it, it, it's always felt kind of like like a bubble or like maybe like this is it, like we're done, we're going to come back down. But uh, it, I don't know, the more I learn about it, the more I think we're just at the beginning. Like, like yes. we're early, the early days of this stuff. Yeah, and, and I know that the U.S. would like very much to shut it down, and uh, we will see a very concerted effort for nations to try and integrate and adopt central bank digital currencies uh, like China. And, uh, you know, India has at least twice now tried to completely prohibit all Bitcoin-related transactions and all the cryptocurrencies in general, and they've not been successful. So we'll see. You might know more about this, though, Eric, right? Because it really it really kind of comes from the perspective of, you know, what can you stop? Like what information, what websites, what applications, what can you like not permit inside your country's network? Right. That data. So we access data via cables, right? Physical cables that will run up off the ocean floor uh, and we can access uh, data and information via satellites. And so it's about how do you take an arbitrary geopolitical area like the United States of America and how do you sort of coordinate off from all of these, you know, cryptocurrency applications and websites and activities? You know, how do you cut off a population of 350 million from being able to access all those services? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think uh, it, it, it can be done technically. But um, I think the reality is if that if the government outlaws it and it's against the law, then all of a sudden big institutions just can't play in that game. Right. And so, uh, you know, there was a time in the United States of America where gold was outlawed. You as a private citizen couldn't actually own physical gold. Yeah, so they, they were able to successfully regulate that. Uh, they could do the same thing with 
you know, Bitcoin or anything else that they want. So you make it against the law and like, it doesn't really matter if you have a technical solution or not it becomes a black market all of a sudden. And no one on, you know, above board or above under the table or over the table. So anyone over the table is not going to be playing in that ball game anymore. Well, you know, and that's the, that's kind of like really interesting that you bring that up because one of the primary characteristics of blockchain technology is that it enables the opportunity to conduct transactions anonymously. And this is what has got the feds like all tied up in a pretzel is because they're really upset that they can't watch what people are doing. They can't identify who is doing what with whom, when and where and how. And this is why they're so upset about it. And so, you know, you kind of hear this, this big mantra that, oh, it's being used for illicit activity and it's all criminal activity and, and so on and so forth, right? But prior to cryptocurrencies uh, and digital asset related activity, all criminal activity was conducted in U.S. dollars, right? So the greenback was king. And I didn't hear the feds crying about that for the past several decades. And I don't know because I'm a former criminal defense lawyer. And, and so now you kind of hear them, you know, just kind of going out and they're like, oh, crypto isn't real and crypto is for criminals and crypto this and crypto that. And so they're really kind of trying to clamp down on this because they don't like the possibility of anonymity and they're closing the loops. Here's how they're doing this. They're closing the loops because for startups in this space, startups that are developing um, crypto assets, NFTs, cryptocurrencies, you know, digital securities and so on and so forth, uh, exchanges, you know, wallets, you know, so all of these different applications that are sort of in and around this whole topic of blockchain, they're tracking them down and they're regulating them. They're regulating them and they're fining them. And in some cases, they're putting people in jail. And they're even working through the Financial Action Task Force, which is sort of like the big international treaty organization with over 100 member nations. And they're tracking people down in other countries and they're saying, hey, you know, you offered the sale of this cryptocurrency to U.S. citizens, your cryptocurrency, your crypto asset found its way into the U.S. marketplace, into the hands of the U.S. citizens. Therefore, we have jurisdiction over you. So Italy, hand them over. Switzerland, hand them over. Right. St. Vincent and the Grenadines, hand them over. Right. Or wherever these people are located. And what's crazy to me, the whole planet is cooperating. They're handing them over. This is astonishing to me that the rest of the world wants the United States Department of Justice to have so much power. And at the same time, we are not seeing European nations regulate these activities in the same way or even to the same degree as is the United States. But yet they're still handing people over. So it, it is, we're in this regulatory quagmire here where the U.S. really does not want this technology being developed because what it does is it disperses control away from the few dozen people in the Federal Reserve that currently have a clamp down on every dollar ever printed. They're the ones that are in charge. They want to stay in charge. They don't like this happening. And they've got Congress in their back pocket. Yeah, and it's, it's really easy to take a, an, an enemy, you know, whether that's, I don't know, say the Germans in World War II or Bitcoin today, and you paint it in a negative light, right? So like with... Um, the blockchain and with uh, with Bitcoin, it's used for uh, illicit activities. 
It is, but it's also used for very legitimate activities. I remember hearing about uh, the dark web. You mentioned that much earlier, dark web. And uh, about three years ago, I was like, what, what is this dark web thing? I need to go, I need to go there. And so I did a little bit of research, you know, two or three Google searches later, I had uh, the Tor, uh, Tor browser, yeah, Tor browser on, mm-hmm. on, on my phone. And I spent uh, about four hours one Saturday next to my pool in a lounge chair, just going like learning it site to site to site. And yes, I landed on some sites that, you know, like there's bad stuff going on there. Yeah. But I also learned that there's a lot of good stuff going on there. So like sources communicating with reporters, journalists and uh, media anonymously, mm-hmm. that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. And then also I found out that uh, Facebook had a, a an onion site, which is a dark website um, specifically stood up so that people in uh, countries where the regimes didn't want them talking about things like overthrowing the regime could communicate and collaborate and coordinate in private and anonymously, very legitimate reasons for having mm-hmm. things like the dark web. So, but it's, it's, it's a broad stroke. Oh, that's bad. Right. And so well, you know- the exact same thing happened with Bitcoin. People don't seem to understand there's one fundamental flaw in social logic here. And the fundamental flaw is that regulation equals the elimination of criminal activity. And nothing can be further from the truth. A criminal, by definition, is an individual who has no respect for the law. So you can pass as many laws as your little heart can possibly desire, as creative as you can get, and the criminals don't give a flying flat rat. You pass all your laws, and it's not gonna change their behavior. It is not gonna deter them because only law-abiding citizens obey laws by definition. So when you see our, our elected representatives or the agencies and the administrative bodies who have been received the authority delegated by our elected reg- uh, representatives in the case of like security and exchange commissions or the financial crimes enforcement network, yada, yada, yada. When you see them, like promulgating rule after rule, after law, after law, after statute, after whatever the case may be, you've got a question, like what, what is the end goal here? What is it that we're looking to curb and what behavior might we be looking to curb? And is this rule or statute going to be, is there a likelihood of success that it will curb that behavior? In the case of guidance, I would like some guidance. I would like some guidance that makes some sense on behalf of my clients so that I can give them a reasonable certainty that says, if you do A, B, C, and D, then everybody's gonna be happy with you. But the problem that we have here in the United States is that they refuse, they've been asked repeatedly, and they refuse to come to agreed in guidance. Who, who's refusing? Well, we have this, this uh, sort of intersection of the Internal Revenue Service, the Commodity Future Trading Commission, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and the Security and Exchange Commission. This little box here is kind of set off to one side, and then over here, 
right? We have the OCC. And so the OCC is like when we really start talking about central bank digital currencies, this would be the digital dollar. This is where the government wants to set up its own blockchain so that they can transact directly with individuals and thereby disintermediate all of the banks and financial institutions. Oh boy. Not like it can't happen, it's going to. The Federal Reserve has put out white papers, there's special committees on this. What will happen to the banks and financial institutions? They'll never stand for this, you want to say to me. I say, you're right. They're going to be folded in. <laughs> and uh, is, will this be anonymous? No. <laughs> well, you just forget about that. No, no. So like when you open your Coinbase account now, right, which is one of your sort of on ramps uh, into uh, trading and cryptocurrencies, right? So they give you a, a digital wallet and, you know, and this is like the on ramp onto the highway of trading in cryptocurrencies, right? So you kind of get this exchange and there's all these little, like, like, it's almost like shopping in a flea market, right? And you're like, oh, what can I get by here? Like, who's here, right? Oh, is over here. here. Huh? I say, look at this deal. It's so cheap. Right, right. Yeah. You're like, oh, Ripple is here. Oh, wait, no, no. The SEC's mad at Ripple. They delisted Ripple, right? Oh, what else can I? Can I get some Dogecoin? Can I get some Cardano? Right. And so you're kind of like you're shopping on this digital space. And so what what our government did is they got all their panties in a twist and they said, everybody's anonymous. We don't like this. So they came after the people at Coinbase because they were identifiable. Because remember, um, Bitcoin and Ethereum grew so fast before the federal government caught wind of what was actually going on that by the time the government got involved, there was nobody left there at central command if you were a CENTCOM for them to take down and to hold accountable. So you've got You've got Bitcoin and you've got Ethereum and, and, you know, but but to be able to trade in Bitcoin and Ethereum, to be able to purchase any, well, that was another thing, because you get these service providers that were providing people with on ramps. And so what happened was, is the government set up shop on the on ramp, like a toll booth. And they said, if you want to get on, then you have to give me your, you know, a DNA sample. This is where you need to verify your identification or your, your, your oh. identify yourself. Right? Identify yourself. Forget well, no, that. There, 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 there is, um, I haven't done it yet, but yeah, basically if, if you want to, I guess, send money somewhere else, you have to basically like upload, I think it's your driver's license or, and I haven't done it. Like, oh, yeah. I'm so it's like, it's, it's what you call the KYC, AML, CFT, OFAC, SDN, PEP. Like there's, there's six levels of checking that happens on identified users and, and now they're wanting to regulate these on-ramps like they do fully operable depository institutions. Right. So, so anytime anybody transacts, like they still have to file like, you know, suspicious activity reports and, and, you know, certain transaction reports for like in transactions like that are that maybe appear suspicious or in amounts over 10,000. And, you know, and so they're trying to oh, and they want to reduce that to 3000. And so basically what they're doing is they're saying we're going to make it so expensive for you to comply. This will not be profitable for you. But on so the other hand, there's this new digital U.S. dollar option that the government's put out well that will be mandated it won't be an option basically they're just going to take all the cash out of circulation 
and they'll transfer us over to this new system. So like uh, right now, you know, I'm a Florida resident, I'm here in Orlando, so you know, I've got my Florida driver's license. And so I, I live inside a Florida database somewhere, right? I've got my concealed carry, so I live in that Florida database. Why do I have my concealed carry? I'm sorry if I really offend people. I'm an old country girl and literally my father had to hunt for food. So I was, <laughs> I was actually taught how to hunt and dress out a rabbit and things like that. So yes, backwoods, Ohio, way backwoods, Ohio. <laughs> right. And so, and then I had to get fingerprints for, to have my background check for the Florida bar and get licensed. So like now, now I, I live in that database. Right. And so as I go along here uh, and, and, and I engage in different activities uh, in the state in which I live, I can't tell you how, like, I don't remember how many times I have had to give my same information to the state of Florida. I'm like, what is going on with their databases somewhere? So the same thing is happening with our federal government. It's, it's a hot mess. And so they're like, you know, we can do something about this. We can fix this. We're going to create one colossal centralized database that will probably be operated or controlled to some certain extent in cooperation with Amazon and or Google. Yep and or Apple, and everybody will sort of pull into there and they will keep a lifetime record of anything and everything you've ever done with anybody and everybody ever. So it is the final culmination of Skynet. And this is not even hyperbole. This is the thing that's so crazy. This is how I can be so calm. I used to get really upset about this when we were sort of traipsing along and, and this was all coming in development. And now, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. I've been watching this unfold for decades, and now everybody else is upset yeah. because they're just learning about it. And I'm like, it's too late. It's already well under development. I, I've been saying for uh, a few years now that you know the 1984 Big Brother, it, it's here and it's called we Facebook. We blew past that, right? Yeah, but you know, like, and, and now you know, politicians are upset because Facebook, uh, you know, they'll, they'll censor some people or not. And so they're making these judgment calls. They want to strip away, gosh, what's it called? The 203? No, I forget the. The Section 230. Thank you. Yeah, the Section, yeah, section 230 230 of, immunity for exactly. what people post. Mm -hmm. But, but like, I, I had not heard before that uh, these tech giants were going to basically somehow partner with the United States government to actually create like the ultimate blockchain. Well, they already are partnered with the U.S. government. They already have a number of, you know, private military defense contracts and that they have been operating in tandem with the government. And all of this information is publicly available for anybody to research and find this. It's not even secret. It's like in your face. Hello. We've been married I, for some time. Yeah. <laughs> We're really, doing crazy really things over here. You might want to have a look, but there's nothing you can do about it because we're so huge. You know, Google is largely decentralized at this point, right? What if the United States were to say, you can't operate any, you know, here anymore? Like, what does that mean? So, what, like, Google employees are just simply jetted to some other geographic location? Google could buy its own country, right? It's, this goes back to the Citizens United case, and that never should have happened. And when we started permitting these corporations to make campaign donations is when we lost it. Uh, let's, we spent 40 minutes setting this up. 
<laughs> Can you tell you where it's going? Yeah, well, let's hear it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so this is kind of like, you know, you, you go along in life, right? And you go along in your career and there are these, there are these moments, these epiphanies, these ahas in my life, they're called holy craps. <laughs> I, had, I had one of these like a few weeks ago and I stumbled onto it. I don't want to say like accidentally on purpose. It was accident. Like, so I was looking for one thing that had to do with my client, one of my clients, right? Who's a renewable energy, a social impact. Like they want to democratize investment into renewable energy projects. And they're really into, you know, sort of having social impact in the regions of the world in which they work, right? The global South, Southeast Asia in particular, yada, yada, yada. So I'm seeing all of this stuff come into my feed and my email inbox because I have to subscribe or right? I have to subscribe to like all of these things that people don't want to subscribe to, like SEC announcements and things like that. And you don't want to sign up for that list, but that's what I have to do. And so I'm seeing all this weird stuff come in at my inbox about ESG. Well, I'm a lawyer. I know that ESG means environmental and social governance, and it's like a thing in Europe, right? And so I, I you know, there's parts of it that I really kind of like because I have this background with human rights, and it's something that I studied in my undergrad. It's actually what propelled me into law school, and, and I thought it was really interesting that an EU directive was promulgated earlier this year, and it mandates the responsibility. Uh, for supply chain management for, for companies, right? So European companies are responsible for checking their entire supply chain to determine whether or not there's any kinds of human trafficking or slavery going on. And if it's discovered that there is, and they didn't do anything about it, right? Or they didn't take all reasonable activity to prevent this or clear it out or whatever needed to be done or change their supply chain management practices, then the directors and the officers are going to be held criminally liable in Europe. And so I was like, hey, hey, this is really cool. So I started seeing this ESG stuff pop up into my inbox. I promise this is going somewhere interesting soon, right? But I had to sort of like lay it out and provide the context. It's coming from the Securities and Exchange Commissions. And I'm like, well, what does the SEC have to do with ESG? And so I thought, hmm, maybe it's because they're like, they're thinking that, you know, investors are investing in these public companies or maybe, you know, private companies are trying to raise funds here and they're saying, hey, you know, we're like really social impact minded and, but really they're lying about it. And so the SEC is talking about mandating ESG disclosures, right? And saying, if you are, an ESG company, right? So you're saying so in your articles of incorporation or your bylaws and your shareholders information and you're providing these annual reports, then there has got to be some accountability for the information that you're putting out there. You just can't be greenwashing. You can't just be committing fraud because you want to sound woke. And so you want millennial dollars investing in you. There's got to be some standards. So I started looking into this and here is what I discovered. And this is really interesting. So I was preparing for a lecture that I often give at the University of Central Florida College of um, Engineering and Computer Science. So the whole uh, data science department there at UCF, I teach ethics and data analytics or algorithmic integrity, if you will. And in the process of preparing, I learned about the Chinese social credit system. And a lot of people know about this. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it. But essentially, in China, everything is centralized, just like we're headed. The government controls. They want to know. They, they have facial recognition 
for every Chinese citizen. They have over 200 million CCTV cameras deployed throughout the country, and they are continuing to deploy even more. They recognize you while you're driving in your car. They recognize you while you're walking from your car to the store. They recognize you while you're walking around the store. They recognize you while you drop your kids off at of school. And they, they watch you and everything you do, and you get rated on what you do. You're only allowed to make purchases and reservations and communicate through government approved applications on your mobile phone. So they know who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, what you're saying, what you're purchasing, where you're purchasing it. They're watching you while you're in the store and their network actually shows you, right? Frames you out in a box with your name and your score. And if your score is low, then they, they lock you out of purchasing train tickets, plane tickets, they suspend your passport, you are demoted at your job, et cetera, et cetera. If you get a great score, then you are promoted at your job, your kids get into better schools. If you have lunch with the wrong person that's sort of like on a blacklist, then your score drops. It's a whole thing, this is real, watch the ABC documentary. The United States is implementing this through the back door, as is many of the European nations, and they're using ESG to do it. And here's how they're doing it. The World Economic Forum of, oh my gosh, the International Business Council, I think it's called, um, don't quote me on that, Google it. They have come up, uh, well, the, the International Business Council is being led by, I believe it's the CEO of Bank of America. And so there's this committee and they have put together this list of factors as to how they want corporations to behave and how they want them to be woke and how they want them to be environmentally conscious and socially conscious in the governance and operations of these business organizations that are behaving now like nations. They're behaving as if they are sovereign, these companies are. And so what's happening is these companies are coming together as if they are sovereign nations and they are deciding to adopt and incorporate these ESG principles within them. And so what they are doing then is they're taking a functional to foundational approach. China is top down, right? It's government CENTCOM. They tell you what you do. You don't like it you go into the concentration camp. Yep. And so we call that a foundational to functional approach. The foundation mandates what your function is. In the US, it's the reverse. We take a functional to foundational approach. It's our everyday activities that are being modified and curbed by these uh, corporations that are behaving as if they're sovereign nations and they're telling us what we can do. And so this has been demonstrated very successfully by the social media platforms who are deplatforming people whose ideas are not in line with what the company says their ideas can be. And so when our government gives up its power to mandate free speech upon these corporations, for whatever reason they think is okay, then they allow these corporations to act sovereignly. And when they're imposing this upon the entire population so that a population is just, you know, people are basically disenfranchised, socially excluded, financially excluded because banks are kicking people off their platforms. This is the inverse of the Chinese social credit system, the functional to foundational approach via the, the mandated integration of ESG principles 
into our purchasing, into our communications, into our hiring and our firing and so on and so forth. The basically the rule of the day is you will comply with what these corporations say or else you will be excluded from society, from being able to earn a living, from being able to participate. All righty. Yeah, that makes me want to go buy a farm somewhere in the backwoods of, where were we, Ohio? Yeah, someplace like that. Yeah, when I'm when I'm done with all of this, uh, I'm out of here, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's crazy, but it's also just, it's crazy, something as innocent as, uh, and, and that we could all get behind as far as like, yeah, we don't want like, you know, slave labor. Of course, no one wants, but that's the vehicle to make these changes happen. It is. It's called techno-feudalism because when you look at the World Economic Forum's plan for the Great Reset, what they say is that you will own nothing. You yeah, will own nothing. Let's dive into that. You mentioned this very briefly before I hit go live. I've heard of uh, the concept of a Jubilee event where all the countries basically just agree. Oh, all that debt we've been tracking for the oh, last the great hundred reset. years. We're yeah. gonna press the button and the reset. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and I know what a jubilee is. So yeah. it would you know, I actually heard one person say something the other day that like freaked me out. And you know, for our listeners, it's really important for you to listen to people that make you angry. Because if they are making you angry, that means it's an opposing view, an opposing idea. And if we don't stop for a moment to listen to some of these opposing ideas, then we'll never see it coming. There will be no opportunity for preparation or for opposition or to be able to engage that opposing idea. You won't have the opportunity for influence. And so I'm not, this isn't about politics. This isn't about Republican versus Democrat. This isn't about, you know, religion, you know, being, uh, having a faith versus being an atheist or an agnostic. It's not about that at all. It's, it's basically about do you, this idea of techno-feudalism and that when the global powers who have literally published information and all of the Fortune 1000 companies around the world are saying, yeah, this is what we're doing, right? Everybody is in agreement. Everything will shift. And so blockchain is actually the key to a lot of this blockchain and fintech, because what it will do is it will cause us to transact directly with the enforcement authorities. What do I mean by enforcement authorities? Well, I mean that we have granted, our Congress has granted the authority of law enforcement to these administrative agencies so that if we say or do anything outside that which has been permitted, then it is an arrestable offense. And so we see this happening in China with the Uyghur population. We see this happening in North Korea. We're not surprised by North Korea. We may be a little bit surprised by China's behavior, but what's really kind of crazy is that we're actually seeing this happening in Canada, which is blowing my mind. I can't believe how far Canada has fallen down this rabbit hole and we are literally chasing right after them. So 
if we're not aware, if we're not having these conversations, if we're not taking the moment, I listen to opposing views when I'm cleaning the house, when I'm folding my laundry, maybe when I go for my walks or my runs, you know, when I'm cutting the grass, that's when I take the time to listen to people that I wouldn't normally listen to because I'm like, oh, I don't like them or I don't like their views. Or, I don't like what they're doing. So I'm not going to listen to them. Right. And that's that's how I kind of learn about what's actually happening. And so this is really what has driven the human rights aspect and the threat of technofeudalism is really what has largely driven my passion to do this crazy deep dive into blockchain, fintech, and data analytics tools like AI, machine learning, and natural language processing. I have another comment here from Sean. You appreciated his last comment. He says, uh, you need to do a cameo on Showtime's Billions when they go back to the end of season five. I haven't uh, watched it. Oh, we can talk about Nosedive. We can talk about Nosedive. I actually have a clip from Nosedive Which in. One is that? Okay, so Black Mirror, is yep. it Netflix, Sean? I think it's on it, Netflix. It I've, okay. I've, watched, I've watched every one of them. I just don't know that episode by name. So this episode, Nosedive, is the dystopian social credit ranking. So basically, like the characters in this episode, their entire lives, everything they're watched and everything is about their, their score, the, how they get ranked. Real time um, so interactions. Real time. I can give you right? a five star right now. Yeah. And you see it right now. Yeah. And you see, and that's because that's exactly what's happening in China. And so I actually took a clip from that episode for educational purposes and I inserted it into my lecture on ethics and data analytics. And so when I am, these are doctoral candidates that I, that I teach. And why is that important? Because as I tell them, I'm like, listen, you're the ones with all the power, right? So the people that are having the power now and into the future are the ones that are writing the algorithms. Algorithm is not math. Algorithm is an opinion embedded in code. And so you basically come up with, you know, sort of a desired outcome, right? Maybe the desired outcome is you want the computer to read all of the resumes and you want the computer to determine, you know, really good candidates for this job, you know, based upon these factors. And what is your definition of success? If your definition of success is somebody who has been hired within the company within the past 20 years, who stayed with the company for four years and been promoted at least once, but previously you were biased against women, then that definition of success is only going to give you white men, right? And so you can't use that then as your definition of success. Your data pool is flawed. And so that's kind of like when we think about um, algorithmic integrity, when we think about ethics and data analytics, but it's these people, these data scientists are literally the ones that are writing the programming code that is going to determine whether the Tesla hops to the left or to the right. You know, if like a kid runs out with a ball in the street and a mom is pushing her other kid, you know, in a carriage, like who's the Tesla going to kill? Is it you and I that are making those decisions? No. It's the data scientist that's writing the programming code that makes those decisions. These are the people with the power. So a few emerging technologies here, a little bit of change happening. Whoa. 
Why do we need lawyers involved in this? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, is there any disagreement about this stuff? I mean, actually, let's, how do, how do you help your clients? You know, what, what kind of clients are coming to you? Like with, and you, obviously not, you know, by name, but what, what kind of problems are they kind of struggling with that you help them with? Well, a lot of my clients are like, hey, I've got this really great idea for a business. And, you know, what do I do next? So I'm not your average lawyer because I actually worked uh, with founders of several fantastic startups. And, and in some cases, I was a founder as well. And then three of those were then acquired by publicly traded companies. So I worked from idea through exit in every stage along the way. And so I'm not just your run of the mill lawyer that you're like, oh, you know, I have like this merger acquisition or I have this, you know, fundraising thing that I got to do or an investment fund I want to set up. Yeah, I can write paper, right? That's no big deal. I can write paper. But I think what's really unique is that I really help businesses sort of zero in and refine what their what their idea is like what is the problem that they're solving how are they going to go about solving this how can they relate this to what's available in the marketplace already like i hear people say all the time well i don't have any competition and i'm like mm -mm -mm, don't ever say that to me right so you either have direct or indirect competition but i'm guaranteeing you have competition and then how is it that you can take that and sort of build out your financial projections based upon reliable assumptions that you've pulled from the marketplace and then be an attractive investment vehicle for investors to kind of get your business off the ground and running and, and then sort of staging that out. In addition, like a lot of them are developing like really unique intellectual property. You're like, oh, but I don't have anything that's patentable. Maybe not, but you definitely have intellectual property. So whether it's your branding or your goodwill or your trademark, or maybe just this really unique way that you get something done, right? So that would be like a trade secret protection. And then sort of kind of doing like these IP audits, if you will, and saying, all right, you know, what what is all of the intellectual property and know-how that we can identify here? How can we value this? And how more importantly, how can we monetize this? And what are some different ways that we can get additional revenue coming into the company? How can we quantify that? And then how can we expand your products and your services and your solutions into the future? Is there any way, any angle here that we can get to develop you into something larger, like a platform as a service that's going to have wider market application? Do you need to be outside of the United States to gain some traction because of the regulatory framework that governs you is going to be too onerous, too burdensome, too expensive? Should you be starting up your startup somewhere? else gain this traction build this momentum and then come back and tackle the behemoth that is the u.s regulatory landscape or you know can you do that here you know are you more appropriate to be a corporation or a limited liability company or a nonprofit, maybe even and how is it that you can engage in these fundraising vehicles in a way that's going to make most sense to you that's going to minimize the cost is there a blockchain element that we could develop? Like a lot of folks want to do crowdfunding and Reggae Plus offerings. And in those circumstances, you know, I recommend that they really consider doing a digital securities offering because just simply managing your, your abundant, you know, shareholder registry in the case of those kinds of offerings when you're democratized access for smaller investments for the retail investor, just the cost of managing your shareholder registry alone can be really, uh, it can eat into the proceeds of your raise. So just basically idea to exit for deep and emerging tech companies. Very nice. That's awesome. What, one last thing that I wanted to, to talk about, and, and I appreciate your time. I, I said this would be like 15 or 20 minutes. So <laughs> hopefully you actually blocked off like an hour. 
you've been going at it. I, I definitely appreciate it. So thank you very much. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to get your opinion on is, you know, blockchain and all, all these various technologies that we're talking about. Uh, the, the promise is that it's going to you know, democratize transactions. It's going to remove the intermediaries. And, you know, there's lots of predictions about like, you know, realtors just going away, kind of like travel agents went away, you know, uh, title companies going away. Uh, And then in other industries like the law, right? So, you know, I've heard how, you know, I'm not going to say the right phrase because I don't know the right phrase, but basically lawyer AIs have reviewed murder cases and they found information that have led, I think they've led to overturns and, and freed people that were wrongly convicted that you know the human attorney couldn't do i could be completely wrong about that you're not wrong so you know is is the is the the practice of law by humans in jeopardy and i ask that because you could say a lawyer is kind of an intermediary and interpreter of you know the law to to the application of the law so what what are your kind of predictions about how this is going to affect the legal industry Maybe short term, long term. Yeah, it's gonna do a lot. <laughs> it makes my colleagues really upset. So the Florida Bar is the fourth largest in America and growing. We have over one hundred and seven thousand attorneys licensed by the Florida Bar, and so there's a handful of us in the state that really specialize in blockchain and fintech and whatnot, and we're often tapped to produce continuing legal education courses that are on these topics to sort of help prepare our colleagues for the coming changes. And so everything that you said, Eric, is correct and it's relevant. So for example, I often will start with the real estate case, right? Because even if my colleagues don't practice real estate and a lot of us don't, right? All of us have engaged in a real estate transaction, if not the purchase of a home, then the leasing of something, right? So we've had to have an apartment or a condo. We all have to live somewhere. So all of us have engaged in a real estate transactions. So I start there. And basically, here's what I explained to them. I said, so anytime that you buy or, you know, anytime you buy a piece of property, you have to do a title search. And when you have to do a title search, it requires somebody to physically search through the records of every time that piece of property has changed hands and then kind of go through and determine whether or not all of the property rights transferred together with that title or whether it's somewhere along the chain, there was some mortgage or some lien or you forgot to pay your homeowners association's monthly fees and that, right? Something has attached to the title. There's a claim, there's a claim, right? And then you call it a cloudy title. So what's interesting is, if if every single piece of property in every county were to be recorded on a blockchain and remember the blockchain if it is decentralized we didn't really talk about this much i'm not going to go into big detail but the conclusion here is if the blockchain is decentralized it is protected against hacking and then the only thing you have to worry about is the integrity of the data at the time of data entry and if you can have a fail-safe system to monitor the integrity of the data at the time of the data entry then you can be assured that that record of title is correct accurate secure publicly accessible and then all of a sudden there is no more title search ever again Never again do you have to do a title search. And then what happens? Well, you don't need title insurance. 
all the title insurance companies go out of business, right? And then all the lawsuits that my colleagues, you know, litigate about title, we don't have those anymore. There goes an industry. The same thing we're going to see automation of tax. So if my QuickBooks account and my bank records and, you know, and everything associated with, say, with my law firm is suddenly on a blockchain and then there is a program that is written by people that are way smarter than me to travel along that history of transactions. And there's more information, right? It's like, oh, today, Anessa went to Office Depot when she was, you know, and so the stuff, the itemized receipt that you get from Office Depot, hmm, she bought pens, she brought paper, she bought, you know, printer ink. Oh, and she bought Skittles. Those Skittles are not deductible, right? (laughs) But everything else is. You know, unless maybe I can be like, wait, wait, I was holding an office party. It was a marketing event. I needed Skittles, right? So it's going to be able to do this and it will automatically file my my returns when needed, right? And so it's about kind of pulling in, in that case, the Department of Revenue for the state of Florida, pulling in the Internal Revenue Service. And it's kind of like pulling in these agencies and these third-party service providers, is it possible? Heck yes. We are all pulled into the internet now. You cannot live, right, in modern society without being some sort of appendage on the internet. We are all appendages on the internet. This is what is going to happen, except our new internet is going to be this mega mammoth blockchain, kind of like a train station. You have the trains come in, right? And they get on this big wheel. There's probably a fancy name for it that I don't know. And then they turn like this and then they come off and they go on to the other blockchain, right? So like this blockchain exchange central and all of these entities and these government agencies and these individuals and these businesses and these service providers and foundations and nonprofits and individuals individuals and you know everybody is going to come onto this new internet everything is going to be itemized in minuscule detail programs will be written to crawl around out there and read what is happening and it will be able to produce reports and submit them automatically on your behalf sounds nifty until you realize that god forbid you color outside the lines just a moment and then whap, they get you well like the skittles example right i mean as a matter of fact just today i went to walmart and i picked up a whole bunch of snacks for the office but you know black and white tax code that's probably not deductible but it's for the office it's not for me it's for the employees right so there's a reason but yeah i i, I get i get exactly what you're talking about this is scary interesting <laughs> yes a lot of things a lot of mm-hmm. things you know um <clears throat> you said uh the phrase like the new internet and i i think i mean i, I definitely agree with you like there's been a couple phases and i i saw like aol come online from nothing. And when I first got onto AOL, I was like, this is amazing. This whole new world is out there. And that that world's transformed and it's to where we are now with the internet. Uh, But then I had mentioned like spending that day on the dark web. 
and it was like <gasps> there's this whole crazy like journey adventure kind of other world out there this is amazing and i feel like blockchain is kind of like just like that again like there's so many things that could be attached to it and so many implications for it it's it's almost like i can't even I know we just talked about it for an hour, but I, I don't even, like, we barely scratched the surface. I, I think yeah, this thing it's called Web 3.0. 3.0. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very it's interesting. Called web web 3.0 is what is what it's called, this whole concept I've described. Is that right? All right, so it's, it's, it's more than just blockchain and, and a central uh, decentralized database. Yeah, um, and that's why it's important we know about these tools, right? So like you talked about the the where the AI is reading all of the, you know, all of the case material and things like that and it's coming back with information that so yeah, there's there's AI it, I think oh my god, what is it? Ross Intelligence for example is one company that I think it's the bankruptcy case sort of um, the bankruptcy cases, I might be missing. It's been a while. It's been like a few years since I, I, I learned about Ross and I don't do bankruptcy, right? So I was like, oh, very interesting. Uh, but I think it's bankruptcy, which is a very particular kind of uh, area of law. And so it's kind of closed off, right? So bankruptcy court is a thing as opposed to say other kinds of courts. And so you have to file in bankruptcy court. And so kind of going and looking at all of those databases of all of the legal opinions and all of the codes. So if you take all of the bankruptcy code and you drop it into a database, right? And then you also sort of back end, you API in, if you will, into all of the bankruptcy court records uh, or court systems all over the United States, right? And then you're able to have access to and you machine read, uh, your your programming code reads every all of the information filed with all of the courts and it crawls and it can read it now like a person, but smarter. And then it can actually generate conclusions. And I have heard that some of these AI softwares write memorandums of law <laughs> that like we no longer have need for like law students or law clerks because they write these memorandums of law. And, and then likewise, they'll also be able to write briefs, file briefs, things like this. And, and they're better than even some of the most astute lawyers in many circumstances. And it's, and it's because it's able to crawl through and read, you know, millions of pages and people can't do that. And so what's hard is that let's say that you hire like 100 first years and you give them like a million documents to review and so they divide up the documents but what's hard is that you have each person looking in a silo so they might see something you know in their document set but it's detached and it's like an outlier and they don't have context and so because they haven't read all the others and so they're like this is meaningless and they move on and that's where you kind of get these breaks and information when you have people doing it versus when you have a machine that just reads it all. Yeah, I, I get it. Um, humans are fallible for sure. And uh, they, I, I have a saying here, like, communication is always the problem, right? Trying to get two humans or lots of humans uh, to communicate, there's always a breakdown every single time. And so, yeah, if you can remove, um, you know, all, all those, issues with humans <laughs> you could get a better product eventually now if, if what would be your advice then to to lawyers like you know if, if if a managing partner is listening to this and they got to this point they're probably like okay well 
now what? What should I do maybe to position myself for the next? And I don't know how much longer we have, right? Like, right. Is this thing that's going to, the legal system, as we know, is going to drastically change like in, next year or in 20 years or, or longer. So let's say like a, maybe a 10, 10 year horizon. Like, how do I prepare for the next 10 years? Like, what, what are some things I should be thinking about as a managing partner to make sure that I don't fall into this trap that's, that's coming? Yeah, and that's a really fair question. And I try to sort of draw like these analogies or maybe talk about some metaphors that kind of help us contextualize this. We're obviously going to have to pivot. We're going to have to shift uh, the kinds of services and counsel that we provide to our clients. And, you know, it really also depends on what kind of area law that we're practicing and what we think that the timeline might be to implementation and affectation by these new technologies into our practice area. So I think of it like this. So if I have a factory and the factory is getting ready to replace all of the workers with robots, maybe my factory makes cell phones and and I am a cell phone assembler, like I'm on the assembly line assembling cell phones, but now I'm going to replace by a robot. So what do I want to do? I want to, I, I now want to assemble robots. Yeah. So you have to, for lack of a better, for a be, lack of a better phrase, you have to like level up. You have to see what's coming and you have to come on top of it, right? You have to layer yourself on top of that. And so I, I got into blockchain and fintech by accident. And uh, I have this big background in tech, actually, unified communications, collaborations, video network operations, data management over global network infrastructure. That was a wild story how I got into that too, right? But, but I fell into blockchain and fintech by accident, but you can do it purposefully. So blockchain and fintech is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't matter if Bitcoin stays or go. It doesn't matter if Ethereum comes or goes. It doesn't matter if DeFi is a thing or what the regulatory authorities do. It doesn't matter if we implement a digital dollar. It's here. It's to stay. All of the major mega mammoth companies have already been implementing this technology, like JP Morgan, for example, Bank of America, at least a year or so ago held more patents in blockchain than any other company out there, although they weren't implementing it themselves and they were anti-blockchain. So for my colleagues and, and not just for my colleagues, but for, you know, any business entrepreneur, you have to level up. You have to stay ahead of this. This is coming at us like a freight train. Forget the internet. The internet took decades to kind of just slowly unfold and then sort of crawl its tentacles out over the world. And it was just the paradigm was so outrageously different than anything anybody had ever experienced before. We didn't have the vision. We couldn't see. This was some sort of new creature that we had never experienced before. Blockchain isn't like that at all. I want to make sure that it's very, very clear for folks. This is different. I need you to understand that this is coming at you like a freight train. It's like the internet on steroids on steroids. There's no escaping this. I don't know what the timeline looks like because there are competing interests, but I am shocked at how quickly this is being integrated into the daily lives of citizens around the world. 
I'm also simultaneously shocked at how slow the United States is, how they're holding the reins back on this and they're discouraging integration and adoption. I see now how it's because they just want to redirect it in a way that suits those in power, but it's coming. It's coming because the corporations are being treated as sovereign nations and they are the ones that are going to cram it down your throat even if you choke. So level up. Really interesting. I have never heard, you know, kind of, or the concept, I guess, of these large corporations being treated as sovereign entities. So uh, that that is something new for me, for sure. I mean, all almost all of this whole discussion is something new for me. I have learned a tremendous amount, and I'm gonna go back and watch this again. Oh, there was so much information, and I had to kind of think about processing the interview. I want to go back and make sure I get all this. This was this was really, really interesting, and I really appreciate your time. I'm guessing we covered almost everything you, you uh, were hoping to cover. Is there anything that you think would be of interest to anyone who's watching that we didn't cover? Yeah, so for folks who are like, oh my gosh, wow, how do you eat this elephant? Right. And so the way to the way to eat an elephant, this is a metaphor, people, I don't actually eat elephants, um, is one bite at a time. And you're like, mm, I don't really know where to start. So it doesn't matter where you start. So here's here's how you tackle something that is like a totally foreign language. This this is how you learn something absolutely new. You start by attending the schools of YouTube and Google. Literally, like start there. And you find short, less than 10 to 15 minute videos um, that just like infographic kind of videos where people are like, oh, introduction to blockchain, introduction to Bitcoin, what are smart contracts? <laughs> like, let's start there and just watch a lot of those. And you're like, when do I do this? I literally set up my cell phone, like on my little makeup box in my bathroom and I prop it against the mirror and I hit play while I do my hair and my makeup. This is how I survive because I am just as busy as you are. I set it up and I prop it up against like my ninja blender in the kitchen, not kidding, because I had to watch 10 year old videos on commodities. <laughs> Cause I was like, I don't understand. What does the, why is the CFTC involved in blockchain and digital assets? Why? <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> I had to start over. I'm like, okay, all right, let's go back to the fundamentals. What am I missing about the nature of commodities that can help me figure out why the CFTC has jurisdiction over this? So that's, that, this, this is how you do it. And it's, and it's a long process and you be patient and it's just one bite at a time. Yeah, there's, there's almost nothing I think that you can't learn on YouTube these days. Yes, YouTube <laughs> University, I totally agree. And uh, I, I have a stationary bike at home and I could either choose to virtually follow an instructor through some trail in Europe or something, or I could have my cell phone right there and watch YouTube video after video after video. And that's, that's how I kind of came up to where I'm at now, which is not very far, but at least I have, you know, some rudimentary understanding of these technologies and kind of where it's going, but this was really, really enlightening and I appreciate your time. So thank you so much. If somebody would like to get in touch with you and ask additional questions, or if they want to really kind of uh, talk to you about working with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? 
Yeah, so I'm on all the social media, Anessa Allen Santos is my last name, two words, just as you can kind of see here. Or you can find me through my website at intellilaw.io. IO is for Indian Ocean, it's tech thing, tech clients appreciate it. So for the millennials that are younger than me, they're like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, I know that. So <laughs> intellilaw.io. <laughs> Very cool. All right, well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Eric, for having me.